Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's recording. Today, we'll be sharing the video of Rav Asher Weiss's talk on the role of a Jewish physician in end-of-life care. During the live event of this talk, um, Rabbi Sprung shared a few words and kind sentiments and thank yous. Unfortunately, though, due to technical difficulties, we were unable to share that video and audio. So I just wanted to introduce this video real brief. Um, first off, massive thank you to Rabbi Sprung and the Beis Medjish for Medical Halacha for putting together all the content that this share was sort of based on for the pamphlets, the ongoing series, which inspired us to, to push forward with this share. Um, thank you to Rabbi Sprung for arranging for Avashar Weiss to come being able to talk with us. Um, massive thank you to New York Medical College and Turo University for being able to provide the CME accreditation and working hard that we can get that accreditation in time for this event. And as the Jewish Physicians Network, I want to say that we are so happy to be able to provide the platform to have such an important discussion. And I specifically want to thank Menachem Jacobs and Yoni Kadish for their tremendous work on pushing this through, both on helping us revise the content and filling out the massive amounts of paperwork to get this pushed through and for, for CME accreditation. And so um, with all the projects they do, they, we, they work so hard. And I just want to take an opportunity to thank them as well. Um, and without further ado, Rabbi Fold. I haven't had a chance to say hello in a while. Embarrassing to me. <clears throat> Good afternoon to everyone. I'm pleased to join with Torah University, <clears throat> especially President Alan Gadish, um, who presides over the largest school of healthcare providers in the United States. But on a personal level, he's a man who walks through Teaneck a community I frequent, I have four children and their families who live there. Rabbi Kadesh walks through the streets with a, a smile, a shalom aleichem, and a good Shabbos to everyone he passes. A man who knows no conceit, quite the contrary, he soars with eagles, yet hasn't lost touch with the common folk. So to, to you, President Kadesh, my pleasure to join in an effort with you. In the way of introduction, I've said before that we as Yidin speak of Chesed Avraham. The Chesed that Avraham Avinu is legendary for. What's the source in our Torah? And it's of course the story <clears throat> Of Avram Avinu sitting Pesach Ha'oel Kechom Hayom, it's hot. Hotzicham Amin Artika, very hot. He's the third day for Mila, and I'm sure all your all you physicians know the third day is Mitzayah. Why? Probably had some kind of infection in the pre-listed days. Nevertheless, Alabaka Ratz Avram Lushi Vasiugos. He's mitzarev the whole mishpachet achnas azorchim. Chesed Avram. But if we think honestly, not viscerally, when two remaining malachim go down to Sodom, that awful place where the Torah Gnosha says, Erdonov Erakitzakosahi, Kodesh wants to take a peek about that awful, awful screaming that reaches Kisi HaKovet. And what is that about? So Beishas Rabbah tells us, Rashi brings it. It's little Riva who brought a sandwich to tourists 
for which she was tortured to death on her father's roof. So when Lot meets those two malachim and invites them into his own, who's most in Ephesh for Chesed? Is it Avram or is it Lot? It would seem like Lot, wouldn't it? But go the story a little further. They surround his house. They're angry. He has guests, tourists, strangers, foreigners. And he's, they say, we're going to rape them homosexually. And Lot's response is, Party on my virgin daughters. How awful. At this point, we notice that something's gone awry. The truth, Yidna Mesinefesh only three Averas, barring Shashmad, no other ones. This mandated load taking out 20 shekel, saying, Go to the next village, buy a plate of hummus on me. Here, you won't be welcome. They don't like strangers. He didn't do that. How come? Quick in its simple, superficial analysis. Avram Avinu was Bekayim Kolatova Kula. How come? His Shukhanach on his dining room table. He knew Halacha and what Halacha mandated. Lot lived by Feter Avram, by Uncle Abe, for some 15 years. Was impressed. Attend Pasuach Lirvacha. The center of civilization was Avram Avinu's home. He was the one who made the world turn on an ethical, on a moral, on a civilized level. Lot was impressed by it and wanted to redo it, but Lot did it viscerally. Lot did it from his heart. He didn't have a Shulchan Aruch. He didn't have a Meirah that he could pick up his cell phone and ask Yishayin Halacha to. That's why no one ever applauds Chesed Lot. Quite the contrary, we invalidate it. I want to suggest to you, as Chatoy Animaski Rayom, and I tell it to you because it was a nightmare of my life, my father Lashom had a whole bunch of CVAs. The last two weeks of his life, he no longer was with us in terms of consciousness. The last night I was with him, his blood pressure began to drop radically. It was clear we're separating now. And it was equally clear that I don't want that to happen. So there was a syringe of epinephrine in the room and I squirted it into my father's IV. It raised the cascading blood pressure, the falling collapsing blood pressure. And he lived another three, four hours, and then we parted. Did I have a right to do that? Was I creating more time for my father? Or was I elongating and prolonging his pain and suffering departing this world? A very, very difficult thing. It was three in the morning. There was no one I could pick up the phone to. And I'm not sure that that isn't still in Avera today. So at the end of the day, what I want to suggest is 
with the radical new technology that medicine has brought to play, one needs to be very careful confronting the shilas of technology. When do we intervene? How much do we intervene? What is appropriate intervention and what is not? And I have to tell you, every generation has its lighthouse, its poseg, the one who anchors Torah's Moshe in its generation. In this generation, we're gebenched to have Mori Rabbi Avoshavais Shlita, a man who really needs no introduction, but a man who clearly enjoys the title of Agon because he deserves that. His Torah is vast, but his Chochmah in Refuah specifically is also vast. The Beis Medrash Kavor that Rabbi Sprung and I collaborated in establishing in the Technion, where medical students learn in Beis Medrash as well as going to medical school, is now being dramatically expanded. The important thing, the Nasi of the Beis Medrash is a Ravai Shlita. Everyone who's been to Yerushalayim and everyone who has contact with Yerushalayim, even not being there, knows of the Rosh Hashiva being in Avbezdin and Rosh Hashiva and Moshe Kolel. He's the post for all of Shari Tzedek Hospital. The Shailas that have come up there are monumental. <clears throat> we cross wild lines and we always have access to Rav Ashavais, who carefully and didactically puts Torah together with Mada and comes up with what ought we do. Rosh is one of the postcom of our generation, but I'm proud that our lab, this PGD lab, the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, enjoys access to the Rav and that he's the one who paskins halachas so that everything is done Avosha is a legend in his own time. He's a man who's touched people the entire spectrum from right to left. He's a man Noam. I don't think anyone can claim that Achil Hashem came out of his doings. So it's with a great deal of pleasure that I suggest I present before you Kvod, and I think we can look forward to a share that'll be most inspiring. Thank you, my dear friend, Rabbi Fold, for your generous introduction. Generous, maybe somewhat exaggerated, but I know it comes from your heart. So it's a privilege for me, first of all, to be with all of you. It's always a simple for me to share a podium and just to see my friend Rabbi Fold. We have so much in common, we do so much together and I wish you many, many more wonderful years of good health. Keep up your holy work. It's a privilege for me to share any project with my dear 
and recent friends, not many years, Rabbi Krupke, Dr. Kalish, and my precious Talmud, Rabbi Sprung, heading the base Medish together to Rabbi Fold. So the issues we came to discuss today are Devorim HaOmdim Berumo Shel Olam. My audience today are medical doctors and medical students. Recently, a person approached me in the street. Is it true that I paskin that if you're not learning title all day, you should be a doctor? I laughed and I said, no, that's not a psak. As a psak, it would be a ridiculous psak. But I do agree to say, if you're not teaching Taylor, the second best job you could ever have is being a doctor. Because the bonum and doctors serve. Life is a mission, we're here to serve. So the bonim tend to the nefesh, to the neshoma, to the spirit. Doctors are here to preserve life. And we share a mission, serving Klad Yislam. So it's a covenant and a privilege to address such a big crowd of doctors, present and future. So we're dealing with the greatest mitzvah in the title, which is Pikuach Nefesh. And as Robert Fultz said in his introduction, what chesed means, what atzalus nefoshes means, one would assume that Pikuach Nefesh reigns supreme. And in all circumstances, we need to prolong and preserve life. As a general statement, that is true. But in the details, not always. And sometimes a patient or even the family of the patient do have the privilege to choose. So in modern ethics, patient autonomy is huge. And the patient has the right to decide to be or not to be, to live or to die. That is unacceptable by halacha. Chazal say, Bal We cannot choose to live or to die. Our life doesn't belong to us to forego or forfeit. Now, Kodesh who gave life, he is the only one to take life. It is only a Kodesh Bochu that gives life that has the right to take life. And in halachic perspective, suicide equals murder. There's no difference between taking your own life and taking the life of another. However, and despite what I just said, there are circumstances in which a person does have the right to choose. And in modern medicine in our time, more than ever before, these questions come up all the time. With the advance of medicine and technology, 
We have far more means and tools at our disposal than we ever had before to prolong life. And therefore, we are confronted with painful choices and painful questions. When people are extremely of old age, suffering, in pain, terminally ill or chronically ill, do we always need to preserve and prolong life? We find a definition in Chazal, Chaye Shah. That means life, literally translated, loosely translated, it is life that is limited. Life is always limited. No one is here forever. But we do find a concept, Chayesho, twice in Shas. Yom Yom the Gemara says, we are to violate Shabbos even for Chayesho. Rashi writes, Chayesho Yoim O Yomayim, person is terminally ill. We know he's approaching the end of the line. He might have a day, he might have two days. Would we still violate Shabbos to prolong his life? And the Gemara says, yes. Interesting Me'iri. The Me'iri says, because in one moment, a person could salvage a lifetime. He could do tshuva. Does this Me'iri have any practical halachic implication? And what if he's not from? Very unlikely he'll do tshuva. What is if he is barely conscious or unconscious? He doesn't have the mind to do tshuva. No. The Me'iri doesn't really have practical halachic implications. I think the Me'iri just means to stress the sanctity and importance of a moment. A moment of life is a world. And it is not us to differentiate between one life and another. So on one hand, the Gemara clearly says, Machalal and Shabbos Bishval Show. But there's another Sugyan of the Zorad of Chav Zayin which is a bit complicated, and I'll try to share it with you as best as I can. So in Avodah Zorah of Zion, the Gemara says, you cannot go to a non-Jewish doctor because they might murder you and take your life. To us, growing up in a Western world, this seems to be very strange. But knowing the world of your, I don't think it was strange at all. And a thousand years ago in Europe and in other places in the world, when anti-Semitism was so rampant and so horrific, yes, in the days of Chazal, it was very common that if a Jew turned to an un-Jewish doctor, he might be putting his life in immediate and imminent jeopardy. So Chazal say you cannot be treated by an un-Jewish doctor without Jewish supervision. However, if a person's life is in immediate danger and all he has is chayesha, he is permitted to take a chance 
and be treated by a non-Jewish doctor without supervision. And the Gemara asks why? And the Gemara's response is, If he's not gonna be treated, he's gonna die. And therefore, he is entitled, not only entitled, but obliged to put his life in immediate danger in order to try to achieve a cure. Because Sheval Taisa means he's going to die in a short while. So the Gemara says, lo How does that fit in with the Gemara or Machal Shabbos, even for a day or two? Taisus deals with this question in Mesechet Avedesor. And Taisus says, yes. Chayesho is important enough to override Shabbos. But when we need to weigh the balance, achieving a cure to have a normal lifespan against putting Chayesho in jeopardy, Chaye Olam would override Chayesho. I think Chaye Olam is a ridiculous definition. Besides a Kodesh Baruch Hu, no one lives forever. But we mean a normal life expectancy. Depending on your age, depending on many other factors. But what is clear from Tysus is, when we try to achieve a cure to an illness that puts our life in jeopardy, we are entitled to jeopardize and this thesis is the basis of a radical psaac going back more than 300 years. And it's amazing. I don't even understand. I can't even imagine what the practical question was because surgery was not really very developed in those days going back almost 350 years. But this Yankov deals with the question of a choyle whose life was in jeopardy. And the doctor said, all he has is days or weeks. But they did suggest a new treatment. He might achieve a cure, but it might bring about his immediate demise. What is he supposed to do according to Allah? He can live another few weeks by doing nothing. But according to the doctors, he doesn't have more than another few weeks. Should he choose treatment that might bring about his immediate demise, but he might achieve a cure? The Shivasyankov's Paskins with trepidation. And he says, you need to ask three doctors, I need to ask a basedin. But at the end of the day, is, it is the choice of the patient. And he has the right to choose Kumbase or Shelba Altas. Yes, he has autonomy. He could say, I want to be passive and let a Kodesh Boko decide to take Manishoma whenever my time comes. But he also has the right to choose treatment, knowing that he might die immediately. 
That was an old sack going back more than 300 years. Agreed upon by many Gedolim of later generations. Binyan Sien, Rabbi Yankov Ettlinger, was the greatest Poisik in Germany, going back 150 years. Chedakalaf Kufiudalaf, Avnei Tzedek, in Transylvania, in Romania, Hungary. The Sigit Arav, who was the founder of a Hasidic dynasty, the grandfather of both the Satmer Rebbe and the Kloizma Rebbe. Avnei Tzedek, Choshemishpet Kufiutes, Gilead Marshal Yordea Kuv Nun Vav, Shloyme Eger, the great son of Rebbe Kiva Eger. And in later generations of Chaim Oizor, pre-Holocaust Godel of Lithuania, Achiesi Yoradeh Tesbov, all agreeing to this Rosyatum. Yes, sometimes the patient has autonomy and he has the right to choose. Does he want to put his life in jeopardy and immediacy trying to achieve a cure? Or does leave it up to a Kodesh Baruch if all I have is high show, let it be. And then the question would come up, how do we define Chaye show? As I said before, no one lives forever. Rashi writes, Yomo Yomayim. Does Rashi mean only Yom or Yomayim? Bachiezer, Rebchaim was one of the greatest Paiskeman leaders an amazing Torah personality in pre-Holocaust times, the Achiezer writes, not necessarily Yom Yomayim, up to six months. Why six months? That seems to be a guess. Rabbi Shloim Kluger, Yoradea Kufnor Rab writes, maybe 12 months. Why 12? In Hilchas Treifus, Chazal teaches us a Treifus lives up to 12 months. So 12 months is somewhat of a substantial limit. Reb Moshe, probably the greatest Hoysik of our times. has three substantial chuvas, agrees with Reb Shloim Kruger, maybe 12 months. Lachiezer writes six months. Interesting. In the state of Israel, we have a law passed by the Knesset the one that initiated and formulated and wrote this law is my dear friend, Professor Steinberg, who probably many of you know. And according to the law, yes, has certain privileges and choices for six months. And that is based on modern medical statistics and research. Doctors have a fairly accurate ability to predict life expectancy up to six months. But whenever they try to go beyond that, the numbers drop dramatically. So it is as if a spark of Ruach HaKodesh in the writings of the Achiezer. It is difficult to define Chayesha. Some Gedolim write, doesn't depend on time. They use a definition in Lashon Kodesh, misnavein v'hoyleich, which means his illness is progressive and ultimately would bring about his demise. I cannot agree with that definition. Of course, today, 
we are familiar with many progressive diseases. They are progressive, no way back. They're relentless, but sometimes a person could live for many years. So I do not think misnaven v'hoilech would be the proper definition. Very difficult to define, but I think six months would be a fair assumption. And this brings us to another halachic debate. So based on the opinion of the Susyanke, which is almost anonymously agreed upon, and I quoted many Gedalian following in his footsteps. Does it depend on the statistics? What are the chances to achieve a cure? Mishnah Srechomim says, only if statistically it's more than 50% that he will achieve a cure. Lachiezer once again disagrees and he says, even if it is less than 50%, the patient has the right to dream, to hope, to try to achieve a cure, even though he's putting his life in immediate jeopardy. In my chuvis, I side with the Achiyaza. So this is one area in which we do, Halacha does agree to patient autonomy. Is a patient entitled to forego treatment that is stressful, that is painful? Just a week ago, I had a phone call which made me cry. 15-year-old girl calls me. Her friend was standing right next to her with a terrible case of cancer. And she's in chemotherapy and she is in so much pain. And she asked me, could I stop treatment? I no longer have Kayach to bear this. The doctor say, Without chemotherapy, she probably will die within three weeks or four weeks. Chemotherapy won't give her a cure, but she might have some months. I asked that girl, what do your parents feel? And she said, my parents said I should ask that of. Whatever that of says, I shall do. I cried. And I told that girl, if you don't have the courage to take it, you don't need to continue chemotherapy. And you have the right to say, I'm yours, my nishom is yours. And if you want to take me home, it's up to you. I apologize for becoming emotional, but I'm choking right now when I just remember that phone call. And this is a psak I gave many times, but not many times to a 15-year-old girl. 15-year-old girls should be playing with their friends, not dying in a cancer ward. But those are the ways of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And we never question his judgment. So is a patient entitled to forego treatment or is he always to try to prolong his own life? 
למורן אברום, שין חופכי סעיף קוטן וו, תשובה סדת באס חלק גמל טוב מ"ד. They say a person has no right not to go for treatment, but they deal with a totally different question that has nothing to do with our discussion. They're dealing with the Chodesh Yesh Vesekona that either needs to eat Yom Kippur or he needs to be Machana Shabbos or he needs to eat treif food and he wants to be from and he says, I am willing to jeopardize my life and I don't want to be Machana Shabbos or eat non-kosher food. Mogad Ram says, that is a sin. His mitzvah is to preserve his life. And when we say that it's not only permissible, but it is mandatory, that's a chiyuv. So it has nothing to do with our discussion. Rabbi Yankov ended in Moir Oktsiyo, Seifan Shechanor Parachayim, Shin Chofches, says, if a patient doesn't believe in the efficiency and the effectiveness of a certain treatment, we would not impose the treatment on him. And he has the right to say, I don't believe in this treatment and I'm not going for it. That Rabbi Yankov Emden is no longer relevant. Rabbi Yankov Emden's sack is based on an assumption, excuse me for, for using such simple language, on the assumption that doctors don't really know what they're talking about. That is Rabbi Yankov Emden's fundamental assumption. And he quotes the Ibn Ezra going back 900 years. The doctors only know what they see, but they don't know what's under your skin. The Ibn Ezra was the greatest vision going back 900 years. And obviously he knew what he was talking about, but that was back then when doctors really didn't have technology, they didn't have the means. So according to Ibn Ezra, the only things doctors could really treat is a skin rash, what they see, or a toothache. We're living in different times, my friends. And as you all know, well, doctors know a great deal of what's under our skin and what's on in our internal organs. So this Maritsu is no longer relevant. But nevertheless, three of the greatest Gedolim in our generation. And many times, when we ask a fundamental question, is halacha live? Is it vibrant? Do we have chidushim in halacha? I think this psaq is an unbelievable chidush because it is not based on any early sources. But Reb Moshe, the as I mentioned, Reb Shlomo Zalman, as quoted in Shulchan Shloima and Yon Refua, and the stipler, the stipler was not really known as a poisik. He was one of the greatest Lamdonim, one of the greatest Tadikim and Gedonim of our time. And today, we were Malavi's great son, So the stipler was Rabchaim's father. And the stipler writes in a letter in Karyane, the Igarat Tekuv Tzadik, the same. A terminally ill patient that is in pain has the right to forego treatment. Many times people ask me, should I sign a DNR? And I say, no, that is a very bad idea. 
I think it is preferable to appoint a proxy, a love that you trust. And if worse comes to worse and you could no longer decide what type of treatment you want, pass that decision over to a trusted love and a qualified love. You should discuss with them your feelings, but leave it up to him because signing a blank DNR, there are many situations in which one's life could be saved and they will not do the effort to save his life. Many times a person could salvage his life and achieve quality of life as well. But signing a DNR won't give him that opportunity. So it is preferable to appoint a proxy. And if decisions need to be made, have your family together with the Talmud Chochem, who is qualified, make those decisions. So as I said, a patient sometimes has the authority to say, I can no longer bear this treatment and I leave it up to Akadosh Bohu. Does his family have that same authority? Just a few weeks ago, I participated in a Chemet conference in New York. We had an unbelievable weekend with 500 attendees, medical professionals. And I gave four shiurim and one of the shiurim I gave was about the authority of close family members to decide when the patient could no longer decide for himself or he doesn't feel he has the capacity to decide for himself. And I made it clear, yes, closest of kin, closest family members have the authority. So in my chuvis, I discussed it at great length. Is this authority based on the concept of and I wrote, it is based on nature. It is based on nature. Kids care for their parents. Parents care for their kids. There is no one else to make these decisions. So the Moshe of Shomazaman write, when you have an elderly parent, he is elderly, he can no longer decide for yourself. It is up to you. But you need to bear in mind what is toivis ha'chayla and detach yourself from your own interests and your own stress and your own difficulties. Your decision must be based on what is best for him. Reb Moshe says, you need to try to imagine what he would want, but that is irrelevant when parents need to decide for a child. You cannot try to guess what a child would want. A child is not supposed to want, and he is not supposed to be aware of options. So what you need to bear in mind is what is best, either for your elderly parent or for your child. It's not about you, it's about the patient. So I wanna tell you a crazy story, which I was exposed to. And this just takes my present discussion to the extreme. Non-Jewish family, the father was terminally ill, terribly ill. He was dying. And the apotropos, the family told the doctors, do everything you can to prolong, to prolong his life. Resuscitation, intubation, 
do everything. And the doctors were shocked. And they said, you're a modern liberal family. Why do you want to do this to your elderly father? They were embarrassed to say, like they planned a vacation six months in advance. And they wanted to leave to the Bahamas and they didn't want their dying father to shatter and disturb their vacation. So they asked the doctors, just keep him doing, going, whatever it takes. Crazy story. But I just want to make stress and bring home the point. You have authority, but you cannot abuse that authority. And your authority is to decide what is the best for the patient. So my general psak is, and I have these shyness almost every day, intubate or not to intubate. And I say you intubate if there's a chance to extubate. So when a person no longer has functioning lungs, we could intubate, but there's no chance to extubate. And there's no mitzvah just pumping oxygen into his lungs, causing extreme pain and needing to sedate him just to prolong his death. Resuscitate or not to resuscitate. Resuscitation and intubation is important and is called for. When there is a chance to bring him back, you're not gonna make him young again. You might not be able to give him great quality of life, but you could get him over the hurdle. He has pneumonia. He could be treated with antibiotics. You intubate, we hope to extubate. His heart stopped beating by shock. Might be a car accident. There might be infection. He could be treated. But if a person has lung cancer and he no longer could breathe of his own or congestive heart failure and his heart no longer has the energy, the strength to keep on pumping and it would be just futile resuscitate, break all his ribs, causing extreme stress and pain and needing to sedate him, that is not an answer. So we are to intubate if there's a chance to extubate, we need to do resuscitation if there's a chance that his heart could, could keep on beating on its own. So not in every situation do we need to intervene. In Shin Lamites and Yoradeh, there are two fundamental avachas. And they seem to contradict one another. One aloha is you need to preserve life and do everything you can to prolong life. And the other aloha is if a person is a geysis, we do nothing to prolong the gesisa, let him go. We don't have a clear aloha definition of what is a geysis. Paiskim don't discuss this question. We have the tools to define what is a chodesh what is a chodesh There are no clear halachic definitions of what is a basis. But we do have halach in Yerodeshin and this ain marichin, we do not prolong the season. So this is a very, very delicate balance. But sometimes, when it is obvious, that a person is approaching the end of his life. And my friends, I've been there. 
more than once. I've been there with my elderly parents. My father passed away at the age of 89, six and a half years ago. I'm still in Ashnas Eva. My mother passed away three months ago. It's almost five months by now. So I've been there. My wife passed away when she was 60. And she had lung cancer. And it was so obvious to me just to ease her pain. And I asked the doctors to give her morphine. And it was aware, maybe, maybe, to shorten her life. Maybe yes, maybe no, we would never know. But it was clear to me. And I know that was the malicious psaac in cases I personally know about. When a patient is in extreme pain, you need to ease his pain and you need to make them more comfortable. So this is a very, very delicate line to walk. So, terminal sedation is murder. You never sedate a person to end his life. That is something we don't do, but we do try to ease one's pain. And I know that this is a very delicate balance. Never would we actively bring about a person's demise, no matter how sick he or she might be. We don't shorten intentionally one's life, never. And that is why we don't pull the plug. But we are not always smahuyev to prolong life. And sometimes we just sit back and tell a Kodesh Baruch Hashem Nosan, Hashem Yikach, and not only Hashem Lokach. Sometimes we just lift our eyes to the heavens and say, from this point on, it's up to you. Many times I'm asked by doctors in their profession, they are required to participate directly or indirectly in procedures that might not be logically compatible. Nurses or an anesthesiologist who has to administer anesthesia for an abortion, terminating a pregnancy, which is not permissibly al Allah. So if you could try to get out of these situations, do your best. If you can't get out of this situation, then you're just administering anesthesia. That would not be defined as a Maybe indirectly, you're part of the process. You do not need to lose your license in a situation like that. So I discussed some of the dilemmas, some of the issues that come up in the broad spectrum of end of life issues. I wish you all We should always, because this book should be with us. We are here to enhance life, prolong life, preserve life, because life is more precious than anything else. That I'm at the end of Perek Alev of Mila, 
at the end of the first Pedic of Hilchus Mila, the Rambam writes, I don't see myself as there. The Rambam explains the halacha. When a child's life might be in jeopardy, we will postpone circumcision. We will don't do Mila. And the Rambam writes, Pikuach Nefesh Doichi Kola Mitzvahs. That's an amazing addition, and many a wonder. Why does the Rambam write that? And I think that's just the Rambam's profound insight. Why is it that Pikuach Nefesh overrides any other mitzvah? Nothing is final in this world besides death. Any mitzvah? And when it's not this mitzvah, it will be other mitzvahs. But when a person's life is lost, no one can bring it back. Only a Kodesh Boruch So my brocha to all of you, the active doctors and the future doctors, we should all have the schus to serve a Kodesh Bohu, preserve life, prolong life, enhance life. And we should share, we should share our efforts. Bring peace to the world. Thank you for being with me. Do you have any questions? Uh, first, I obviously wanted to thank the Rav for that unbelievable, wonderful share, informative. Um, a few of the questions that were posed, um, which the Rav dealt with at the end, in general, I want to know if you could, the Rav could address more specifically um, the roles of from physicians. Um, for example, um, you know, when a patient, you know, the Rav spoke about DNR and appointing a family member, and you know, and, instead of signing a DNR, what would a from physician do you have a, or a trainee a resident how do you communicate that to um to, to the patients um if you if you met a patient who was already asked for physician assisted suicide which the Rav said is also what do you do how do you deal with that situation um and again sorry physicians today are faced with challenges we didn't even imagine a few years ago end of life issues is only a small part of this unbelievable challenge. And I am asked every day by physicians about gender change and transgenders. So in America, especially, you know, if a child comes to you and asks for hormone blockers, you're not even allowed to share this information with a parent. What is a Froome doctor supposed to do? If a Froom boy comes to him and says, yes, he wants, to, he wants to change his gender and he asks for treatment, and you can't even share this information with parents. So what are you supposed to do? Act in accordance to Allah or put your profession in jeopardy? So we are confronted today with challenges and shyness, which we didn't dream would ever be relevant in the past. 
but I don't want to complicate matters. And I was asked to talk about end of life. So let's put transgender aside for another opportunity. Regarding end of life issues, I think you just need to give your patients options. Obviously, if he's a firm patient, you need to try to instruct him to the best of your knowledge what is right and try to give him advice which is based on halacha. If you're dealing with a non-Jewish patient or a non-firm patient and you're really afraid you might put your license in jeopardy because that person might turn to the board and say, the doctor tried to convince me, you know, and to coerce me. And in that case, you just give him the options. Try not to be directly involved. If you could refer him to someone else, do so. If it's a firm family, I think you do need to try to fulfill your halachi duties and try to convey to them they should speak to their love or share with them your understanding and your knowledge. I don't hear you. Sorry about that. Um, I know the Rav touched on, on the concept of geysis. Um, Is there a difference in geysis for Yehudi and any Yehudi in, in this regard? That's what I wanted to know. I do not recall any source that differentiates between a Jew and a non-Jew regarding the dinam of Gaisis. Uh, I think it is obvious, you know, Gaisis is either when a person no longer has breath and, you know, breathing becomes very, very shallow. And usually that happens at the last, last stage of life or multi-system failure. I don't know exactly how to define basis, but I do not think there's a difference between Jew and non-Jew regarding the concept of basis. Maybe the Rav could expand a little bit. You know, physicians or residents, you know, when they want to present all the options or just to be, you know, to be, to be clinically sound in what they're presenting, they should, they have to say, this is all the possibilities. How do you do that at the same time? You know, you're not gonna lose your license. You're not gonna tell them what to do. But you're you're presenting. How do you deal with that? Uh, you know, as a physician or as a an attending or resident. You know, as, as a physician, I think this is something. You know, I share with you some of my personal experiences. One of the problems we have today is doctors today feel that they need to be totally open with patients and tell them exactly what their situation is. And sometimes it shatters their spirits and takes away hope. And I spoke to oncologists a lot about this. And I say sometimes all a person has left it is hope. And you take away his hope, it just, it leaves him with nothing. And he becomes totally depressed. And that will even, it, it, it might even shorten his life. So I think in consultation with a family, it is not always the right thing to do. So in Shulchan on one hand, Shulchan says, we need to tell a patient that he's dying. Maybe he wants to convey a message to his children. Maybe he wants to, to tell them some things that are important for him to tell them, either right at Savoam 
or convey certain messages. However, Mishra says, but if there is a chashash that you're going to shatter his spirits, you don't even say vidu. You should not say vidu with him. So this is more up to the family together with the physician. When do we share all this information with the patient or leave it up to the family? That is regarding one aspect, sharing with the patient this condition. Now, sharing with the patient or the family the options. Well, obviously, they know something about the options. They could treat or not treat. So I think you need to delicately encourage them to treat, but only in those situations in which that is the right decision. I mentioned the case of the 15-year-old girl. Sometimes it is not up to you at all as a physician. And sometimes it really is the patient's choice. But you need to give him the options. You need to explain to him clearly what could he expect with treatment, what would he expect without treatment? And if halachically, you know, it is right to choose one course, you need to do your best to, to try to steer him down that path. I'm, I'm trying to make myself as clear as possible. That's great. I see everybody Fold has his hand raised. Up. Just want to underline one thing the Rav said when he said that rather than DNR, one should have a family member present. That's so clear and so absolute. The mitzvah of Kiburav applies. How could a family member not be the Roshamita? But I want you to understand the ramifications of DNR are that the nursing staff and the technicians quite often realize this patient has been tossed to tell a yeosh, if you will. And the quality of care and the amount of bed sores, the amount of isurim exponentially increase. Um, DNR is a very dangerous order to sign. What the Rav said is so absolutely Oiskahalton in what it looks like in, in the corridors of hospitals. One should think many times before such an order is ever issued. Rabbi Fold, thank you for the compliments and thank you for signing off on my set. No, no, no. Just underlining it. Thank you. We have time we for... We, we understand each other, my dear friend. Do we have time for a few more questions or follow-ups? Uh, we have time for one more. I, I apologize. but uh, no, no, no problem. Um, I guess this is, a, you know... Um, is there, I guess a little bit more technical, but someone wanted to know, is there a point where, you know, when you're dealing with feeding and hydrating a terminal patient uh, who has stopped taking things by mouth um, a pant or a patient with advanced dementia or other debilitating illnesses, um, you know, is there a minimum amount they need to take? How do we, just, you know, uh, do they take less feeding tubes? If you if could address that type of question. Uh, yes, yeah, so these are, yeah. I mentioned before the technology is a blessing on one hand, but it brings forth so many questions and dilemmas. 
life was far more simple in days of yore, and so was death. You didn't have many choices. So in modern ethics, there is what we call heroic measures. Would halacha accept you know, this type of definition? I think so. I think so. It is impossible to define what we mean when we use the term heroic measures, but I think administering nutrition, hydration, oxygen, those are the basics. People die without food, they die without fluids, they die if they can't breathe. Those are usually not heroic measures. But what families sometimes aren't aware of, a person at the end of their life no longer digests food, sometimes the digestive system would no longer process food. So you need to have trusted doctors and professional doctors and nurses caring for the patient. Generally speaking, Yes, you need to hydrate patients up to the end because not hydrating them would mean hastening their demise, their death. I mean, uh, dehydration causes death. You need to use the classical means of supplying nourishment, which is either a peg or a feeding tube, but sometimes in the very end of life, it no longer makes a difference. And the same with oxygen. Intubating is extreme stress for the lungs. People must understand what it means intubating a patient. It's pushing a tube down his lungs, blowing up a balloon to keep the air passage open, pumping air into his lungs. That is extreme pain. But just giving him oxygen is just easing his pain and it's not gonna go on forever. So I think you do need to give oxygen. You do need to give hydration. You do need to give you know, food in as much as is possible and is called for. These are the basic sustenance of life, which if you deprive a patient of them, it is hastening his demise, which, which is a total prohibition. Thank you very much. If I could just say, I know there are a lot of questions that we don't have time for the Rav. But in the I, chat I, thank, I thank you all. And let me just say, I think these shiurim are extremely important. The cooperation of Rabbonim and doctors are so important to Jewish life. So thank you. I just want to finish. I cannot finish without a few words. Today, in Eretz Yisrael, we were Malala, one of the giants of our generation, the Beisei Lamai. It was a funeral like none before, and we hope none after. More than a half million people came together just for Kvayda Taylor. 
Rabbi Chaim was a giant, a towering giant of Torah. And it's amazing why so many people felt attached to him because he wasn't a speaker. He never spoke in public, never in his life. He wasn't a great magachir. He never gave shiur. He wasn't a great communicator. If anybody tells you he spent 10 minutes, 10 minutes with Rabhaim, he's probably a liar or maybe he's a lucid king. He spent 15 seconds, a half a minute, a minute. He wasn't a communicator. At the end of his life, instead of saying Bruchavatzlocha, he had a genius abbreviation, Buha. You needed to figure out that means Bruchavatzlocha. So why do people love him? You know, it's it, it's just amazing. I think because he was essentially all about Taylor. That Abraham we knew years ago was the greatest master of the generation the greatest sage of the generation. And it was so pure and such an honor. Of. As a member in my shul, grew up in Bnei Barak, he's about my age, and he remembers 50 years ago. The kids used to tease watch another. Who's going to catch up, Chaim? They used to wait for them when he finished davening, company on the way home. And they used to ask him, you know, Where's this written? Where's that written? They just opened the Gemara and just looked for a Mama Chazal. And they made believe that they don't remember a Gemara. And he patiently answered each and every one of them with an exact source, the exact daf. They never caught him with a Mama Chazal. He was the embodiment of a Smoda, of a Havistoira, of a Nova. And it's a great loss. So he was 94 years old. And I mentioned before, nobody lives forever. So why do we mourn a 94-year-old person? Chazal say, When the Besamidus was destroyed, did anybody ask, how old was this building? 420 years old. Well, buildings don't stand forever. Why are you crying? You know, this is quite an old building. Because the base of Midas is not just a building. The base of Midas is where Kodesh Bohol dwells. And we expected the base of Midas to be forever. We know that Gedolim are human. We know that they can be forever. But from our point of view, we would expect them to be forever. And it's always hard to part. It was hard to part from a base Migdash. It's hard to part from Torah giants that we love and admire. He should be a Meretz for Klal Yisrael. We're going to learn his Torah for many, many years to come. He left an amazing Torah heritage. He should be a association. We should only know the service. So thank you all. We should all be Zechel HaKadosh and Shemayim. Have a beautiful evening. I, I just want to thank the Rav. And um, I put in the chat, uh, as Rav pointed out, the, uh, the synergy between doctors and Rabbonim.
um, the Jewish Physicians Network has a link you can go to to ask the Rav uh, Shilas, Rav Sprung. Um, so it's recommended for all the questions we didn't get to, if someone would like to put in, you know, send in a question to Rabbi Sprung, that is a great place to uh, to uh, submit your questions that we didn't get to today to ask the Rav. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you, Rabbi Fold. Bye.